Good morning, everybody. Happy Sabbath. It's, let me just get my clicker there. I forgot it there. Thanks, Britt. It's good to be at church this morning. I was sick last week, so I wasn't here, unfortunately, so it's good to be back. I know that there's quite a few people. Let me just quickly start this. Um, I know there's quite a few people that's sick today as well, and I know they are watching online, so we want to welcome everybody watching online. Um, but it's good to be back. I've missed church last week, and it was so good to watch it online. We have such a, such a blessing to know that uh, if we can't come to church, that we can watch it online. But we're glad that you guys have made it to church today. Um, wasn't the music just beautiful? Um, I was listening to them practice that song this morning, and I was like, man, that is such a powerful song. And um, the band was beautiful. The voices was beautiful. The only thing that I think that was missing still is for Daryl to spin that double bass. Um, I'm, still, I'm still hoping that will happen one day. Um, let me just quickly sort out my iPad here, if you just give me one second. Cool, so we are still busy with our series, The Long Story Short. We're still in crisis mode, in a sense. We've done creation, we're in crisis, we're finishing up crisis today. So we spent uh, last week looking at Genesis chapter 3, and we basically looked at a bit of the motivation, although we've covered that already, but we looked primarily at the method um, of how the devil is going to work with humanity, and he did the same with Jesus. And so we looked at, uh, specifically Genesis chapter 3, we looked at the conflict in Eden, the consequences of sin, and the coming of the um, conqueror. And so we looked at how, how he operates. It says in Genesis chapter 3 that, that he was crafty, more crafty than any beast of the field. And we saw that his craftiness is displayed through getting us to doubt with our heads, to desire with our hearts, and disobey with our hands, which means that at the heart of this conflict, he's going to get us to make a switch in our mind, to shift our paradigm, to think differently. And he gets us to doubt, specifically chipping away at God's word in order to doubt God's truth, essentially at the heart of everything of the great controversy, is to doubt that God is good. If the devil can, can, can win in that to get you to doubt that God's goodness is towards you, he's got, the, he's got the all one. And so that was what Jesus has come to do. He comes to show us that God is good. Um, after we moved from the, the doubts, he moves to the desires of the heart, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Then we look at the consequences of sin. We looked at um, also that the core of Genesis chapter 3, that the middle part of that is Jesus being promised to come, the seed that will come. And we saw that um, Jesus did come. Alan White, this quote that we ended on, says, when Jesus uh, was in Matthew chapter 4, when he wrestled with the devil in the, in the wilderness and he overcame, that is such an important story for us as Christians. And she writes this, she says, many look on this conflict between Christ and Satan in the wilderness when they were there, having no special bearing on their own life, but for them at as little interest. But within the domain of every human heart, this controversy is repeated. So the controversy between good and evil, the controversy of doubting with our heads, desiring with our hearts, and disobeying with our hands, that controversy that played itself out in the wilderness, the one that played it out in the garden, is the same controversy that plays out in your life and in my life. And so the more we understand how, how this works and how we can overcome, the more we know uh, that, that we're in good hands. And as essentially, it's looking at to Jesus not only as our Savior, but our, as our example. So what we're going to do today is we're going to continue with the crisis um, and just explore a little bit more about sin to understand really what sin is. And that's quite important for us because if you have a misunderstanding of sin, you will have a misunderstanding of salvation, right? Imagine if your arm is broken and you go to the doctor and you're like, really, my arm is, is really sore. It's, there's pain in here. And he's like, oh, just take two Panadols and you'll be fine. And you're like, okay, that will help with the pain, but the pain isn't the problem. What's the problem? It's the broken arm, right? So if you just medicate the pain, you're not actually medicating the actual problem that's there. And so we want to get to what the actual problem is. And so today we're going to look at Psalm 32 and look at what the actual problem is. In seismology, they use the example of, a, of an earthquake. So there's a fault plane, and generally there's an epicenter and a hypocenter. An epicenter is where you see the actual destruction, where you see the explosion, uh, the results of the explosion. And then the hypocenter is the place where it actually exploded, exploded under the earth. Right? So if you think, once again, take the analogy of the arm, the problem, the pain is, is part of the problem, but that's not the problem. The problem is, is the broken arm. 
right? And so we want to ask ourselves, we see sin and destruction and all of these things around us. We see a messed up world and we see a turmoil within us. But what, what is actually happening behind the scenes? What is happening under the ground? What is happening? What, what is the actual problem? And so today we're going to look at three words that is replete in the Old Testament um, that explain what sin is. Now, there's many words in the Old Testament. These are not the only three words in the Old Testament. Um, they say that a language uh, or in, in cultures, that in certain cultures, that certain words, the more words they have for a certain thing, the more important it is to them. The Inuits, the Eskimos, they have about 11 words for, for snow. Super important to them, right? In the Hebrew language, there's many words for sin, but three are very, very important. And so that's what, we, what's we, what, are, what we're going to look at today. I just want to remind you as well that we have a podcast where we dive in a little bit deeper. So every week we have this podcast. It is on Spotify. It's on Apple uh, podcast devices. And uh, where else, Andrew? It's on all the platforms that you can think of. It should be there. Otherwise, you can just scan um, that QR code, and then you'll be able to find it as well. So myself, Robbie, Eddie and Berenice, we chat every week, and we kind of just jump in a little bit deeper how to apply this information a bit more, so we would love for you to join us. Um, but before we start with our sermon, let's just pray together again. Gracious Father, we come to you and we say thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. It's a privilege to be a Lord, to serve you, to worship you. Lord, we come to you to worship today. We bring our best to you and we say thank you, Lord, that you have given your best to us, that you've given your all to us. Lord, as we get into this very difficult discussion about sin, Lord, we know that we are not objective observers to sin, but we are willing participants many times. We come, Lord, knowing that we have darkness within us. And Lord, we have contributed to darkness on this earth. And I pray, Lord, that we would be not only willing to see that, that gross darkness, but that we would be able to see the great balm that you bring to us, the light that you, that you shine upon us the grace that you have given to us, Lord, the salvation that comes only through you. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at Psalm 32, and the reason that I chose the Psalm 32, except uh, uh, the other passages, is because Psalm 32 brings it very compact. We don't have the whole day to go through it, but you can spend a lot of time explaining this. But essentially the question that, that we want to answer today, is humanity good? Is humanity bad, or are we kind of a mixed bag, good and bad, yin and yang? Like, where do we fit within the story? Where are we? Where are you as an individual? If I had to ask you today, are you a good person, are you a bad person, or are you kind of a bit of a mixed bag? Like, if you had to ask yourself honestly, where would you rate yourself? Now, when you ask that question, I think majority of would say, yeah, I'm kind of good. Like, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a Hitler. Like, I haven't killed anybody, I, you know, I, I mean, I do certain things here and there, but I'm not, right? But I'm not asking in the question about you saying whether you're good or bad, whether you're the moral uh, uh, ruler that, that gets to judge. I'm asking from God's perspective, are you good or bad? From the objective point from where God stands, using his moral law as the ruler, are you good or bad? Or a mixed bad? Where do you stand? So I want to mention the Stanford experiment that happened in 1971. Can I see a raise of hands? How many of you have ever heard of the Stanford experiment? So quite a few of you. So Stanford experiment is one of the most kind of widely known experiments. It's a very unethical experiment. Today they would never do something like this. But there was a, a guy, Philip Zimbardo, who was a, a social a psychologist in Stanford that wanted to do an experiment. Actually, the, the, the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Marine Corps, they wanted to find out the relation between uh, wardens and prisoners and the power hierarchy or power structures within military um, prisons. And they wanted to find out, so he did this experiment. Um, they got uh, um, about 70 applicants. They put a, 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 in the paper, they put an advert in that they wanted to um, have people to come in for an experiment that would have lasted for two weeks. Had 70 applicants. Eventually, they screened them, and they made sure that they had no criminal records, that they, they, they had no serious um, um, issues with them, they had a psychological survey with them or review. They also made sure that there was no drug or alcohol abuse or usage. And so it was just, you know, normal, everyday, average Joes that they took for the survey, 24. And then they split them up randomly, 12 to be prisoners, 12 to be wardens. And how they did that, they even tried to make that as random as possible. They took put all the, the, the photos of all of the, the participants, and then they took a coin and flipped the coin. 
you know, and then they randomly split them up, 24 um, prisoners, 24 warden, or 12 uh, prisoners, 12 wardens. And then um, they made this mock prison. It was supposed to run for two weeks. And they put them in there, and they each had clothing. So the prisoners had a prison, or the wardens had uh, uniforms, um, or the guards rather, not the warden. The guards had uniforms. Some of them even wore um, glasses so that they couldn't see into their eyes. Um, they, could, they had batons. They had um, authority, obviously. The prisoners had to wear like a, a, something over their head. They had to wear a, this big gown with a number. They didn't call them by their names. They only called them by their numbers. Um, and so the experiment started, right? These are normal, everyday individuals in a mock prison. It's not a real prison. They put them in there. And um, the first day, they, at 2.30 uh, in the morning, they, uh, the, prison, the, the guards decided that they wanted to wake them up and do a head count. So they woke them up rudely and said to them, come stand in line. Some of them didn't want to get up. Some of them were kind of used to staying in, you know, when somebody calls. And um, this obviously got the, prisoners pretty, uh, the prison guards pretty upset. And so they met, let them all do push-ups and did some stuff. So they could not be physically violent with them, but they could berate them. They could give them punishment. They could do all of these things, but they couldn't be physically violent with them. So 2.30, they were obviously not upset because they're not listening to them. And so they made them do push-ups and various things till everybody was in line. Then the prisoners were not happy with this, and then eventually they tore off their numbers, and they started to rebel. They blocked the their entry to their room. And so the prison... The, uh, the, um, the guards escalated, they brought a fire extinguisher, they uh, you know, um, kind of hosed them down a little bit, um, got them in, and then they put all of them in one room and said, okay, now you're going to be in this one room. And then they stripped them naked and put them in this room and left them there. And then they took one of the other rooms that was supposed to be the, the, uh, uh, a cell, and they said, if you're good, you'll come to this room and we'll give you food and we'll give you stuff. This is the first day, right? This is like you know, 24 hours in, not even 24 hours, 12 hours, 13 hours in, right? And so they started to move them around and use these tactics, right? And eventually there was this kind of this, this, this dehumanizing effect to the point that six days in, there was somebody that already had a, a, a mental breakdown. Six days in, they had to call off the experiment because the, it was getting too intense. That one of the, the researchers came and said to Philip Zimbardo, hey, this is unethical. Right? You need to stop this. He eventually wrote a book years after this called The Lucifer Effect, where he said that there's a very thin line in putting in the right situation. You think that you're good, but you're not as good as what you think you are. That you just need the right push and the right situation. You will do stuff that you never thought that you would be able to do. Because we look at some of these people and be like, yeah, 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 you're bad, but that's not me. I will never do that. A few years before that, um, another guy, Dr. Milgram, did the same experiment. So 10 years before that, in the 1960s, there was another experiment that kind of came to the same conclusion that Philip Zimbardo came to. What he did was a lot easier than this, and, and, and he took a lot longer time. His experiment sometimes ran for two years. And so what uh, Milgram was, he was a Jew that lived in America, and he just came out of World War II, and he said, would World War II happen, or would what, what Hitler did in in Germany, would that be able to happen in America? Like, there, was, there were SS soldiers that said, yeah, 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 we were just following orders. Like, we're not bad people, we were just following orders. And we did atrocious things, yeah, but it's not on us, we were just following orders, right? And so the, he was saying, would that happen in America? So he did this experiment. He, he had a teacher, a learner, and an observer. And we'd get them in a room, and the only person that knew what was going on was the person that was supposed to be the, the teacher. And so they said that there's a learner in another room that's connected to an electrical device. And that person would sit down, and then there would be you, the teacher, and you need to read stuff to them, and they have to repeat what you've read to them. If they get it wrong, you must press a button, and that button will shock them. And you'll start off with 15 volts. 15 volts, you can't even feel it. A little bit of a small little something, but not much. And it will go all the way to 450 volts, enough to kill a person. And then there was another person there that would stand there. Now, the, 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 the learner and the observer, they are both actors. The only person that didn't know what was going on was the, was the teacher that was sitting at the thing, reading it, and had to administer the shock. Right? And so they... They started the experiment, and the person would get it wrong, and then they would press the button and then move the dial up to 30 volts. 
and he would read it again and get it wrong, and they would move it up. To certain points in some of these experiments that the person would actually be faking that he's getting a heart attack, and he would be screaming and shouting. Some of them even uh, uh, um, pretended to die. And 65% of the population that went through this experiment went all the way to 450 volts. Now, you might say, man, that, that's some messed up people there. Once again, same experiment, same people that normal, average, normal human beings that was tested for any abnormalities. In America, the statistic of sadic, uh, sadistic people is 1%. 65% of people went all the way to 450 volts. 100% of human beings that, that did that experiment went to 300 volts. That experiment was done over and over and over again. A thing that is well known today is an idea called situationism. And these two individuals and various other psychologists have come to this point to say that situationism is that when you're in a situation and all the, decks, all the cards are stacked in a specific way, we as human beings will do evil things. You might sit here in your cozy pew and you know, you've just sung these beautiful songs and say, well, not me, but how bad are you? How bad are we as human beings? He wrote this, Philip Zimbardo, he says, the line between good and evil is permeable and almost anyone can be induced to cross it when pressured by situational forces. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he's, he wrote this as a person that experienced this himself, uh, a person that has been in, in, in Russia, in the gulags there, he writes this, he says, if it only were so simple, if only, we, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. He says, if we could just break up the population and say, you guys are evil, you guys are good. He says, but, but it is necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who's willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Who of us are willing to put up our hands and say, you know what, yeah, I'd probably go 450 volts. I might not do it now, but in the right situation, at the right time, am I willing to be honest enough to say, man, you know what, I'm not as good as I think I am. There is a darkness in me that I don't even understand about myself. Are we willing to hold up that mirror? Because I think that's what Scripture wants to do. Scripture wants to come and hold up the mirror. It's like, it's like these blue lights. Have you ever seen these blue lights? These blue lights um, kind of show certain things, and they use it when they do investigations if they want to see splatter. You know, you can clean if there was blood or urine or any, any, any um, you know, liquid or something. You can clean it up, but then if you spray this, you'll see that there was a certain fluid there, right? Or you can use, there's certain pens that you can use that you can write stuff on, and you won't see it to the eye, but if you put the dark light there, the black light there, you'll be able to see that. Essentially, what the gospel wants to do is that, yeah, you look very pretty, and you look very beautiful, and you've come in your beautiful clothes, and everything looks perfect, but the gospel wants to put on the light and shine it, and say, but let's see the things that nobody else can see. Let's, let's, let's investigate what goes on in your, in your mind and in your heart. What about those actions that nobody knows about? How dark is that? Do you know how bad humanity is? Do you know how bad you truly are and what you're truly capable of? It's not a comfortable position to sit in, is it? It's not a comfortable position to say, yeah, that's what we're made of. Timothy Keller writes this, he says, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Like we would not even dare to believe how bad we really are. We want to believe that other people are very bad, but we don't want to believe it about ourselves. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we had ever dared hoped. That's the gospel. It's worse than what you think it is, and it's better than you can ever even imagine. That's the gospel. You are way worse than what you think you are, even on your worst day. But the gospel is better than you have ever imagined, even on your best day. Right? And that's what Psalm 32 gets to. Psalm 32 is a very easy psalm. Um, uh, David wrote this, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, he wrote together when he had just committed various egregious acts. He had committed adultery, he had murdered, he had, uh, you know, had lied, he had covered stuff up. There's just tons and tons of stuff. And he, he writes Psalm 51 um, as, uh, about forgiveness and then so, this, this, um, 
This Psalm 32 is a song of deliverance. And he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man, um, the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So those three words are what we're going to look at very briefly. Transgression, sin, and, and, and iniquity. Now those three words, like I said, in the Hebrew, there's many other words that, that kind, of, kind of demarcate what sin is. But these are the three main ones. And you can go to all the main texts in the Scripture. When Paul speaks about the just shall live by faith in Romans, he quotes Psalm 32. In Romans 4, he quotes Psalm 32. When he's trying to explain how bad humanity is, after he said that the Jews and the Gentiles, and it doesn't matter who you are, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. In Romans chapter 4, as he's starting to pick up what the gospel is about, he goes to Psalm 32 to explain what sin is. Right? When we go to one of the greatest revelations of who God is, the covenant, and we'll speak about the covenant next week, when God starts to explain himself and the covenant is given, we see those three words. The Lord passed before me and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You see, we sometimes think that sin is just me doing something bad. We just want to change behaviors. But if you have a very shallow understanding of sin, you'll have a shallow understanding of salvation. If you think sin is merely doing the right thing, you, uh, uh, sorry, if you think that sin is merely doing the wrong thing, you'll think salvation is merely doing the right thing. But it is not that. It's a part of that, but there's much more to that. We see even later on in Leviticus, where it speaks about the Day of Atonement, the greatest day in the calendar year for the Jews that spoke about atonement, being one with God. This, these three words are used again. And Aaron should lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over, uh, uh, over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all of their transgression and all of their sins. So we see this idea of iniquity and transgression and sin as a, as a holistic picture of the sin problem within humanity. So what is transgression? The first one, the Hebrew word there is pesha. So transgression fundamentally is a willful breach of relationship between two parties, meaning it, you know that you're doing something wrong and you're doing it. It's a relational term. It's not merely an action. It's not just something you do. It is a relational term. In the Hebrew, actually, if you, if you go and you break trust with somebody, that means that you've peshad against them. You have transgressed against them. Give you a very simple example. Say, for instance, I go and I steal something from the neighbor over there. I slip into their house and I steal something from there, right? I have committed a sin, but I have not committed transgression in the sense of I have not broken trust with them. Why? Because I don't have trust with them. I don't know them. But if I break into Scotty's house and I steal something from him, I have peshad against him. Why? Because I have a relationship with him and he trusts me. There's a relational element here, right? Transgression means fundamentally a willful breach of a relationship between two parties. It manifests itself by a deliberate act of rebellion. It is not deception. When Adam and Eve sinned, Eve was deceived, but Adam, Adam deliberately rebelled against God's kingdom. Kipesha. It is an act of defiance by crossing over the line that God has drawn. So this idea of Pesha is not only a breaking of relationship, but it's stepping outside of the boundaries, outside of the lines that God has drawn and saying, I will step over when I want to step over. It's the raising of the fist to God and say, I don't want you to be my God. It is wanting to do whatever we want to do when we want to do it on our terms. We are basically terrorists to the kingdom. It signifies deliberate, premeditated, willful violation of a norm or a standard and the authority that placed the standard there. So it's not just the standard, but the one that placed the standard there that you are rebelling against. Pesha is a deliberate rebell a rebellion against God, His character, and His covenant. That's pretty heavy if you think about that. That when you sin, you are not merely doing something wrong, but you are rebelling against the person. You are stepping outside of the boundaries. Now, just, just go back to our creation story. Go back to our creation idea that all the things that God had made, when He created the material world with the sea and the, 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 the sun and the moon and the stars and the oceans and the, and the, the, the birds and the, the fish and all of these things, right? He created a certain world for us to live in with certain rules, gravity and Second law, like all of these rules, right? He puts them there. If you step outside of those rules, 
you're breaking the boundary. There's also a moral framework that God had created within this world. And when God created everything in Genesis 1 and 2, He said that everything was good. It is 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 very good. So when you step outside of those boundaries, you are stepping into a place that is not very good for you. You're stepping into a place that is a place of destruction and despair that brings those consequences to you. This is the result of transgression. Transgression is rebellion against the order of nature or against the law written on your heart. You've not been designed for this, but yet you go this way. So there's this, there's this internal struggle that you feel, this rubbing against. The gears inside are just rubbing against each other without the oil that it needs. As a breach of the constitution of your own nature. Have you ever thought of sin as that? As a breach of, constitu- of, your, of your own nature. You have not gotten to the bottom of the blackness until you see that it is flat rebellion against God himself. Once again, this is not an easy place to sit in. But have you ever gotten to the blackness of your sin? Have you asked God to say, Lord, reveal the sin that I have in me? The next one is sin. Sin literally means missing the mark. It's like an archer. It's like an archer that that tries to shoot for a specific target and doesn't meet it. Missing a target, as if one was shooting an arrow towards a target and misses. The theological use of the word underscores an act, a trajectory, a lifestyle that deviates from what God has marked out. So this is when you get to the actions part. The one is a relation to God and His law, the the attitude that we have towards that. But the second one is the actual actions about that. And it's not just the wrong actions, but it's also the right actions that you don't do. Sins of omissions and sins of commission. The verb has connotations of breaking the law by failure to living up to the expectations. This includes a failure to respect the full rights and interests of another person involved, including God. Now we can talk all day long about what what the law is. It's pretty easy. Love. Love your neighbor as yourself and love God. So think about that. We can say, but I haven't hurt anybody. I haven't done this and I haven't done this. Yeah, but have you loved them enough? Is there a person in this room today that can say that you have done the Ten Commandments today? You've kept the Ten Commandments today. I hope that there's some of us that can say we've kept the Ten Commandments today. You don't have to raise your hand, right? But is there anybody here that said that I have kept the law perfectly today? As in every nuance of loving every person to the maximum that I can love them. I have done every good that I can do and every opportunity that, that, that I've had, I could do that. And I've also avoided not doing the bad things. Is there any person here that can say that? No. There is not one person in this universe that can ever say, except Jesus, that they have kept the law completely. So we're in a bad space. We're in a place where all of us are condemned. Where none of us are free. Where none of us can say, yeah, I'm not that bad. No, 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 no. By God's standard, you're pretty bad. And today, we don't like to talk about this good and bad. We don't like to say that we're sinners. We don't like to talk about these things. We like to put psychology on stuff. Yeah, but it's it's been your environment. It was a place where you grew up. No, it's it's this and it's that. And we like to excuse and explain. And yes, those things can have impact on those things. But at the heart of the issue is this idea that we are sinners. An uncomfortable place to sit in, isn't it? To realize... That sin is there every moment of every day. Sometimes it's hiding behind a bush, waiting to overtake you. Sometimes it's in your heart. Sometimes it's something that you're doing. You're missing the mark. When we sin, we are missing the goal or the stand that God has for us, which means that there is a failure to observe the requirement of holy living. In short, the consequences of sin is falling short of spiritual wholeness. Sin is the success in evil and failure in good. Success in evil and failure in good. James says this, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. And we like to talk about the stuff that, that, that we don't do. Well, I don't kill and I didn't lie and I, you know, I don't uh, uh, worship false idols and I don't do these things. But let's shift, the, let's shift the paradigm a little bit and ask, how much good are you doing? How much are you loving? 
How much are you caring for people? Then it becomes a bit of a different discussion. Because we like to feel that we're good. We like to absolve ourselves and say, well, I didn't do this and I didn't do that. You should change that and you should change that. But I'm okay because... But ask yourself this question, how good are you? Don't ask yourself how bad you are. How good are you and how does that measure up to what we truly should be? The third term is iniquity. Iniquity is, in its Hebrew root form, means to bend or to distort or to, or to twist. In theological terms, it can mean to be distorted, to be crooked, to be perverted, to be twisted towards evil, away from good. Iniquity has this congenital malfunction of the human soul. Human beings are not merely good people who do bad things, but broken and twisted people who have a congenital deformity that bends us towards sin. We have this proclivity. Paul says this in Romans. Man, I want to do what's good, but if I see, then I've done something bad again. I keep on desiring this, but man, if I see what? Have you experienced this? Is this not the struggle, the human struggle that we all have? Man, I want to be good, but I just struggle. We're all in the same situation where we're messed up, and the more we mess up, the more messed up we become, the more despondent we become. Man, the more we try, the worse it gets because we cannot save ourselves. That is the gospel. Romans says this, what then are we as Jews better off? Paul is setting his example in Romans, right? He's talking, that's the big document that speaks about justification by faith. And he's setting up the story. He starts in Romans and he says that the Gentiles, they are messed up. They, they've done wrong stuff. They are sinners. They are they're in need of Jesus. And he can almost hear the Jews say, yeah, 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 get them, Paul. Get those Gentiles. Let them know, those pagans, that they haven't worshipped the true God. Let them know that they haven't been true believers. Yeah, yeah, they have been wrong. And then he turns the gun on them and he says, but what, what then? Are we as Jews better off? Are we as Christians better off? Are we as uh, Seventh-day Adventists better off? No, 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 no. Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek, Jew and Adventist, doesn't matter who you are, we are all under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. There is not an individual here today that is not righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Why? Because you have an iniquity in you. You are a transgressor. You are a sinner by default. You have a proclivity to go this way, but God is that way. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No one. Not even one. Are you feeling a bit uncomfortable at the moment? Do you want to almost raise a few objections and say, yeah, yeah, but I... Paul is saying, let, let, let the Scriptures speak to you and tell you where you really stand. Their throat is like an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are sh uh, swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. For from within, from the heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. The heart, George Knight writes, the heart is not only the center of the physical life, as in the heart that beats in your chest, as in modern thinking, but is variously described as the seat of thought and will, the center and seat of spiritual life, the source of the inner life, including its thinking, its feeling, its volition. Cardia, which is the Greek word for heart, refers to the inner person, the seat of understanding, of knowledge and will, and takes the meaning of conscience. This is what he's saying, that your conscience, even if you're saying, oh man, I shouldn't have done this, that is already warped as well. Your conscience is warped if the spirit is not working to it. You as a person on your most deepest inner being, you are warped and broken as a person. And you will not experience the deep riches of the gospel until you come to the reality of how bad it is. It is only when you truly realize, man, I, I am messed up. I'm a twisted and twisting creature. It is only when you realize that you are in a bad space that you will realize how sweet the gospel is. So is humanity good, bad, or a mixed bag? Right? We generally say it's a mixed bag. 
But let me tell you that it's not a mixed bag. It's bad. It becomes a mixed bag in the sense that we have a, uh, our image of God has been distorted in us, broken in us. And God is the one that resurrects part of that. He is the one that speaks to us and draws us to himself so that even when we realize that we have sinned, even if we have realized how bad we are, it doesn't come out of our goodness. It comes out of his goodness that comes towards us. And White writes this in Steps to Christ. If you've never read this book, I would highly encourage you to read this. So the young adults just did a, a, a challenge, uh, what, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, on Steps to Christ, reading Steps to Christ, a chapter each day. It doesn't take long. I would highly encourage you, if you've never read Steps to Christ, now is the time to read it. She writes this. She says, Humanity was originally endowed with noble powers and a well-balanced mind, but through disobedience, his, meaning Adam's, powers were perverted. His nature became so weakened through transgression that it was impossible for, for him in his own strength, strength to resist the power of evil. He couldn't do it. It is impossible. Not it is probable, right? It is impossible. There is no way for ourselves to escape from the pit of sin. And she uses that analogy to say that you're in a pit of sin. You're trying to get out. There's no way for you to get out by yourself. You can try any way that you want. There is no way in which we are sunken. Our hearts are evil, and we cannot change them. Education, culture, and the exercise of the world, human effort, all have their proper sphere, but they are what? Powerless. Have you ever tried this to save yourself, to learn more theology so that you can do more stuff, to learn more things and, and, and be more cultured and be more educated and be all of these things because maybe you'll learn more better manners so that you can be a better person, so that you can seem better to everybody else? She says those things are well and good and have their place but they are powerless to change the heart. And that's where the power, that's where the problem lies. They may procure an outward correctness of behavior, but they cannot change the heart. They cannot purify the springs of life, and that is what has the poison in it. There must be a power working from within, a new life from, abo uh, a new life from above before man can be changed from sin to holiness. That power is Christ. There is no other way to be saved. You need to realize how bad the situation is, and then you need to realize that there is a way out, and that is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. His grace alone can quicken the lifeless faculties. Do you get that? That's a, that if, you, if, you, if you didn't know, if you didn't pick that up, that is a, a, an allusion to a verse that Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 that we are dead in our sin. Have you ever asked a, a dead person, hey, are things good, bad, or a mixed bag? No, 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 you know it's bad, right? Paul says that you are dead in your sin, meaning you cannot just say, oh, I can make a few decisions. I mean, I can't make all decisions, but I'm kind of dead in my sin. No, 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 he says you're dead in your sin. You even making, responding to certain things is the, the grace of God. It's called provenient grace. The grace that comes and draws us. When you come to the cross, when you fall down and say, Jesus, I can realize that I have done the X, Y, and Z. I know that I should have done these things. Lord, I'm a transgressor. I'm a sinner. I have done iniquity. Yes, Lord, please forgive me. That's already His grace drawing. It is not you coming to Jesus and says, yes, okay, I'm here now. No, 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 no. It's because you're responding to what He has done for you already. Is that not grace? Unmerited favor? Him drawing you, showing you, revealing to you. God is constantly drawing us to himself. The first step to Christ is taken through the drawing of the Spirit of God, provenient grace. As man responds to this drawing, he advances toward Christ in order that he may repent. God doesn't say, well, now you've repented, now I can love you. No, no, no. He loves us way before. When we are still rebels, when we are outside of the border, when we are raising our fists, when we are doing all these bad things, when we are broken and twisted, he still loves us. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, no matter where you've come from, it doesn't matter. God still loves you. And that has never changed and it never will change. He loves you unendingly more than anything in the world, more than his own life. He loves you. And so when you come and you repent, that's already his grace drawing you. So blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord accounts no iniquity. We know that we are transgressors. We are rebels without a cause. We had no reason to be rebels, but we are born as rebels. We step out of those boundaries all the time. We don't like these boundaries. We know that we miss the mark. We, don't, we, 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 do, we have failure to do what is good, and we succeed in what, what is evil. And then we know that we have this proclivity. 
But what I love about this, and once again, this is not a comprehensive uh, um, idea that David is giving to us, but he gives us three words there, forgiven, covered, and uh, no counting, that I want to just explore very quickly. He says, he says there that blessed, meaning happy, flourishing is the one whose transgression is forgiven. The word forgiven in the Hebrew literally means to pick up a weight or to absorb a blow. So he says, happy, flourishing is the human being who is a rebel, who has done certain things, stepped out of the line, broken relationship with God. But happy is this man when God absorbs the blow. We raise our fists and we're singing, swing to God and he absorbs the blow. He is the one that takes it on him. He lifts up our burdens. He lifts up our transgressions. He lifts up our sin upon himself. Prophesied many years before he would come, Isaiah 53 says this, surely he, Jesus, the Messiah to come, he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken. You manage to look at him and say, oh, what's going on here? Smitten by God and afflicted. If you're, why is God doing this? He's doing this because we have sinned, not because he has sinned. But he was pierced for our transgressions. For your rebellion, he was pierced. For your rebellion, the spear went into his side. For your rebellion, he was on the tree. For your rebellion, he was cut off from God. For your rebellion, the Trinity was rent asunder. For your rebellion, for my rebellion, for the blackness that is in him. He was crushed. Not he was wounded for a little bit. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Upon him, upon this lamb, was the chastisement that brought us peace. Violence, violence thrusted on him so that we can know peace. Death thrusted on him so that we can have life. Sin thrusted on him so that we can stand without sin before God. It's a beautiful privilege to know how black our sin is and to know how beautiful his grace is. And with his wounds, we are healed. All, not just some, not just those outside, not just the Gentiles, not just the non-Adventists, all, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Not only is their transgressions forgiven, but this idea of sin is covered. The, one of the greatest themes in the Old Testament is this idea of the Passover. What is the Passover? Somebody asked me this the other day. What is the Passover? The Passover is literally a story of the Exodus. How God is leading His people out of sin, leading them out of this place. And He says that I will liberate you. And one of the things that you need to do is cover your, your, the lintel of your door with the blood of the Lamb. Because when the angel of death comes and he sees that you have been covered by the blood of the Lamb, you will be saved. Jesus walking, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament and the New Testament, John the Baptist, seeing Jesus coming, says this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, lifted up, absorbed by God. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered by the blood of the Lamb. And blessed is the man, who, who, who the, uh, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Who God doesn't hold that you are crooked and twisted. This idea is, a, is an accounting term almost. Counting and, and balancing the books, right? Ellen White writes this beautiful quote. She says, the world's redeemer was treated as we deserve. Uh, the world's redeemer uh, was treated as we deserve to be treated, in order that we might be treated as he deserved to be treated. Is there a second in this universe where Jesus deserved to be treated the way that he was treated on this earth? But yet he chose that to stand in our stead to save us. He came as God himself, garbed himself with humanity, walked the dusty streets of Palestine, struggled as a human being, was ridiculed, mocked, 
went hungry, didn't have a house, had no property, no possessions, was killed on a tree. He never deserved any of that. He never did anything wrong. He never said anything bad to people. He offended people, yeah, but he did it in love. And what has this beautiful quote where she says that even when he needed to speak a severe word because he was trying to redeem them, when he's trying to redeem them through his words, even when he had to say this, a severe thing in order to help them, he said it with tears in his eyes. He didn't deserve what he got on this earth, but he did it so that we don't get what we deserve. It's called mercy. It's called grace. He came into our world and looked at our sins upon his own divine soul that we might receive his imputed righteousness. When you say, Lord Jesus, please, I accept you as my Lord and Savior, God himself looks at you and says, that's my beloved son. The game is rigged in your favor. The judge, Jesus. The advocate, Jesus. The one that died for you, Jesus. The only one that, that comes that, in the court that is not for you is the accuser, the devil himself. And he wants to accuse you and say, let me show you how bad Quentin is. Let's step him up. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'll take his stead. And he steps in the witness box or in the, in the accused box. And then the devil says, okay, well, let's start the trial. Judge, are you ready? And Jesus says, let me just step in there because I'm the judge too, right? And oh yeah, I'm the advocate too. So he's your advocate that advocates for you. He's the one that steps into the box for you. He's the one that's the judge for you. Paul gets this idea in Ephesians when he says that we are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Because when we are in Christ, the Father sees us and he sees the Son. He doesn't see all the messed up stuff that you've done. He only sees the righteousness of Jesus. How beautiful is that gospel? He was condemned for our sins in which we had no share, that we might be justified by his righteousness in which we had no share. So when we think about it, the world's redeemer gave himself for us. Who was he? Who was this one that gave himself for us? The majesty of heaven, pouring out his blood upon the altar of justice for the sins of guilty man. We should know our relationship to Christ and his relationship to us. There's a, there's a song from a band called Down Here called um, How Many Kings. And they have this phrase in the song where they say, how many kings would abandon their thrones and how many kings would, would step down from their thrones? How many do you know? How many kings and queens do you know would be willing to do that for you? I mean, you don't even have to go king and queen. How many, of a, how, how many just parliamentary leaders do you know? How many mayors do you know? How many people in, in power structures would take a, a blow for you? But stuff that they didn't do. Like if you're the hook for something, who would you call on to say, hey, would you take, the, would you take this for me? Yeah, the king of the universe steps down from his throne, comes down and he's on the hook for your sin, for your transgression, for your iniquity. Does that not show love? Does that, does that not show his great love for us? So I would say, if we had to go to Psalm 32 here, if we had to go to Psalm 32 and, and, and read this again, it would read something like this. Blessed is the one whose rebellious attitude and actions outside of God's moral law, a moral boundary, is absorbed and picked up by God. God picks it up. He absorbs that. Blessed is the one who keeps messing up and missing the mark in what they do or don't do because it is covered by the shed blood of the innocent and gracious just God. Or maybe it would read like this, blessed is the person against whom the Lord doesn't count his twisted nature, but on account of his merits, Christ sees him as blameless and without sin. So the question again, are we, are, are, are we good, bad, or a mixed bag? We are bad, 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 bad without Jesus. There's no hope. We are dead in our sins. But then when we accept Jesus, we're a mixed bag on our way to goodness. We are still becoming regenerate. We are still growing in grace. We are still maturing in our faith. So we are not all bad. When we have accepted Jesus, we have accepted him and we are justified by him and we are in the process of being sanctified by him. And so then we are growing in grace and growing in regeneration and we're growing to become more like him. And every day is a journey upwards towards the kingdom. 
But that is something that you can only choose when you say yes to Jesus. God has already died on the cross. He has already made that. That, that is an objective reality already in history. He has already died. He has already paid for us. He has already paid for all of the sins. Now he needs to apply that. How does he apply that? By us saying yes to the drawings of the Spirit in our lives. For us to say, yes, Lord, I can feel that you have drawn me. I have come to repent. I have come to confess. I have come, Lord, for you to, to shower your grace on me. And as the, worship lead, uh, as the worship band comes up and they sing this beautiful song now, I want you, as we sing the song, to, 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 to listen to the voice of God speaking to your heart and to your soul. I want, as we sing the song, for you to, to, to accept the grace of Jesus towards you. To hear His Spirit speak to you. For some of you, it might be a decision that you've made a thousand or a million times before. Because it's a decision that you make every day. Lord, I follow you as my Lord and my Savior. And I have for so many years and I will continue to do so. For some of you, it might be the first decision. You're at that moment, you are ready to make that decision. To say, Lord, I want to accept you. And for some of you, there's still a, a war in your soul. There's still, still something wrestling within you. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till the next week or the next month or six months or a year from now. God is calling you. He wants to know you now, today. He doesn't want you to step out of that boundary more. He doesn't want you to be more twisted and twisting. He doesn't want you to keep on missing the mark. He wants you to flourish. He wants you to, to grow. He wants you to, to be the best human being that you, have, that you can be. He just has goodness towards you. And the only way that you can receive that goodness is to receive Him. So as we sing this song, I'm going to invite you to not just sing it because we're singing a song, but to take these words as your own and have it as a prayer to God Himself.